There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's some funny clips, though. You know, Carrie Fisher's a big, I mean, one of my favorite expressions by her, uh, in, uh, instant gratification isn't fast enough. Mm. Um, <laughs> sort of a hero. So this episode goes out in memory of Carrie Fisher, I guess, right? Yeah, why not? <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 125 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. And I'm joined by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. You guys have a good Christmas or good break? Yeah, yeah. pretty, pretty uneventful, but it was good. A lot of rain around here. Yeah. No snow. Oh, really? Hmm. Well, there was snow up in the mountains. Uh, actually, actually, the snow was pretty low this year. There was snow at uh, something like 4,000 feet. Uh, not a huge amount, just a little dusting of it, but but that's pretty unusual for here. And how about you, Jaime? I mean, what did you do, family and friends and stuff? Or? Yeah, visited family in Texas, got to go see the Sun Bowl game, a college football game, and that was uh, that was great. Came down to the last uh, very last play. It's fun. Cool. All righty, well, let's dive in. So some interesting follow-up that's come up, and this is uh, going back just before Christmas. Um, Consumer Reports came out and gave a thumbs down, I guess, to the new MacBook Pros, and primarily over battery issues. Yeah, there's been some some pushback on um, the testing method the Consumer Reports had, primarily because of they came up with some some test where the MacBook Pro ended up having a ridiculous amount of, like, positive amount of battery life uh, when they switched from Safari to Chrome. Is like I think the test case, if I have that correctly, uh, done. But but otherwise, the, the battery life was was pretty abysmal in their testing. Um, I don't really know what to think, right? Like I feel, you know, bad for folks who who have a bad experience with the new MacBook Pro, but I honestly don't know what the heck is going on because I, I I couldn't tell you right without having one in my hands to, to try out using the normal things that I do. It 
I'm seeing stuff that says like it was terrible and got better after an update. And I've seen stuff that says, no, 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 it's still terrible. The update didn't do anything. So I don't actually know what the truth is with this new device. Yeah. I'll jump in the gun a bit. I, I got the new devices we ordered before Christmas. They, you know, because of my vacation and stuff, I got them, my hands on them uh, yesterday. Um, and there are some other challenges with them, but I've, so far I've found, you know, my initial reaction was kind of meh, but, um, once I started working with it, um, I've brought one home tonight, as I said earlier. Um, the fit and finish, it does definitely look like an upgraded device, you know. I mean, of course, because it's space gray for one. And the keyboard is quite different. And But other than that, I mean, it's actually been rather peppy, rather snappy, you know, in terms of... Uh, terms of how it works i did manage to get xcode installed on it and did a build of the app and um so it's sort of you know i i wouldn't say it's worse than the my my current macbook um 15 inch retina but uh and and i'm not getting the spinning beach volley kind of stuff that i normally would expect to get you know so far on the device so it's been interesting i mean challenges i'll talk about a little bit later uh, respect to ports, but just coming back to this, there's been a lot of people complaining, I guess, online and things like that about, you know, being disappointed with the MacBook Pros. Um, one of our friends from our tackle group, uh, Talon Pince, um, he tweeted that he did, he, he claims the battery was noticeably worse and uh, he sort of felt it was his, he's, as he says in his tweet, first bad upgrade since uh, in 20 years. You know, as I said, my initial reaction to the device is, is uh, or to the MacBooks, is that, you know, like challenges notwithstanding, um, once you get into it, they do, it does feel like an improved device, like from a hardware point of view. Keyboard's nice, the trackpad's nice, you know. So it's noticeably faster than what you were using before? You know, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's not like you know. Normally, when you get a when you get a new device after you know, if you switch from one one machine to another. I mean, like when I went from my my MacBook 13, I guess it was 2011, 2012 to the 2013, it was a little bit better. You know, bigger drive and that kind of stuff. So, but you know, it wasn't like earth shatteringly different. And I guess that's sort of how this feels. It's not. I mean, I have a 2015 or 20 20 yeah 20. I don't know which model it is. 2015, I guess it is a MacBook Retina at work. Um, and this one, I mean, this new one seems to be it's snappy. Like, you know, I mean, it's hard to say, like, you know, just my initial gut sort of feeling of working with it, you know, things, you know, Safari opens, you know, a little, little, little bit more pep. If you look at the numbers, um, you know, it's it from down the, down the line, it's the same size drive. It's the same size, you know, the same processor. It's the i7. Um, uh, twenty two point seven gigahertz, but uh, but isn't it? It's a it's the newer uh, Skylake processor, if I'm not mistaken, right? I think so. Yeah. So that that should so that should level it up too, right? Um, even though it's the same gigahertz, it's a newer newer version of an Intel processor, right? Yeah, it should. Yeah, yeah. The clock speed doesn't necessarily map into performance like it used to anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think of the Touch Bar? Uh, yeah, it's, that's an interesting thing. Um, like I've, I've played with them at the stores until, until I got this one today. It's, you know, of course now I'm, now I'm looking for, for, uh, what, uh, what options come up, right? So, you know, um, when Aaron got his, he didn't talk about, uh, Xcode, so he hadn't loaded it up, but, you know, so that's one of the first things I did because this is a work machine for me. And, you know, so now I'm looking at the touch bar and I see buttons there that come up and I'm like, Ooh, I wonder what this button does. And I wonder what that button does, you know, that appear depending on the different apps you're using. Right. So, 
Um, so if you're in Xcode, um, you know, there's a couple, like if you're in the, if your cursor's in the project uh, pane there, you get a bunch of different bars. If you put it in the editor, you get other kinds of things going on. And if you're in simulator, you get like a little spray can for debugging and that kind of stuff. So it it looks nice. I mean, you know, from a, from a visual appeal kind of thing, it's kind of interesting, but it's going to take some learning to start kind of look over to it and sort of really sort of get a sense of what, that it's there and it's offering me new functionality or maybe different functionality than I would have used before. You know? So there's no, there's no killer feature yet, say an Xcode that's completely changed your workflow. Well, because of well, no, I mean, given that I've yeah, only worked on it for a couple of hours. Yeah. Minutes, so. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I can tell you, like right off the bat, like first thing I noticed was, okay, so I saw those three sort when I was in, when I had my cursor in the in the, yeah. So when your cursor is in the Project Navigator, and if you look down at the bottom, the bo- uh, the lozenge area where you can filter for a file name, what that little button that looks like a little circle with the three little lines in it, that appears as one of the choices. Um, and if you tap it, it toggles from whatever file you have selected in the, in the Project Navigator down to that filter so you can quickly start typing in a search thing. And I do it a lot. I mean, I, when I'm looking for a particular file, I'll go into that lozenge and I'll punch something in. As well, the the um, Show Recent Files option is another button that shows up, and, and the Source Control button shows up. So, you know, if you were, if you were like, ready to do a commit or something and you hit that Source Control button, it would give you that sort of – it sort of filters the list of files that have been changed since you last worked on stuff. So that, that kind of, those kind of functionalities are, they're kind of helpful um, in terms of what you would want to be doing at any point in time. And that's kind of sort of what I found is like when you're in the standard navigator or standard editor, which is the middle pane, um, the double slashes shows up. So you could, I guess you could, you could, if you're on a line, you could comment it out quickly by, by one click, one would assume. Right. So, so I could see it having some functionality. I would expect that also in an Apple, Apple application that things would show up. It's interesting when you're when you're doing it in Safari and you do a search, and you put your your, your uh, cursor up in the in the, in the navig- you know where you enter the URL. It gives you it shows instead of showing you your favorites as you know right now it shows you like a pop down menu with all the favorite icons of sites you normally visit. They all become colored icons in the track bar, so you can just tap on them and, and go to them. So. And you know, it, it's it's unbelievably clear and clear, crisp looking. Um, it's got a it's got that matte sort of color, that matte finish that I like about about displays. You know, so it's funny that you know we've gone to this glossy display over the last few years. You know, I've always been a matte display user and got mm-hmm. used to the glossy displays. So it's got that matte finish that we used to get on the on the high res displays. And it'd be interesting, having looked at this, it'd be really interesting to see what um, an OLED display on a Mac would look like. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty nice. I, yeah. Well, that's probably still a couple of years away, though, at the, <laughs> the rate Apple's yeah. going. Although there might be a third-party solution, and now that now that uh, <laughs> that's the recommended one, there might be something yeah. before, before uh, we know it. So the touchpad size was, was okay for you? Because um, that I've seen that as a complaint that it's it's too big and you know it's supposed to have palm rejection, but um, folks are still somehow uh, running into that issue. Um, I didn't run into that issue, you know, at the Apple Store. Granted, so it wasn't like I was in my normal seated position, nor was I um, using it as I might normally use a laptop over an eight-hour workday. But even when I looked at where you know my hands would would be, like. I try not to rest my hands on the device itself, right? I suppose it's probably better ergonomically for you if you if you don't rest them. So I assume that these folks are, are letting their their hands, their palm hit the 
the device. And the other thing is like, I have somewhat smaller hands, so maybe I just don't run into that issue. You know, maybe if I was using those Hulk hands from like Toys R Us and trying to type with it, maybe I would be very frustrated. But what what was your experience with that? It sounds like you're positive on the most part. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the keys are interesting too. They're, they're, they're much bigger and they seem to be a little wider. Um, and they're much, as was mentioned before, they're, they're much flatter and, and they don't, they don't seem awkward at all. I mean, to me is from that point of view, but, but to talk about the trackpad and the reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because I tend to rest my thumb pads, like, you know, the big meaty part of your thumb, uh, as part of your palm on, on the, on the front of the the computer i've always done that and to be honest with you i I mean there's only one word to describe the track sorry the trackpad on the um on the device it's huge right but i haven't so far noticed anything uh unusual about you know having rested my resting both hands in fact on it um it's it it's nice because you're not looking for it you're not you know your hand doesn't you know when you when you want to start using you know fingering i guess uh the touchpad it may be awkward i guess if you're if you have your left hand down and you're using your right hand to to uh, move around on you know with the cursor, but or mouse around if you want to call it that, but yeah, no, I haven't really haven't really had haven't noticed anything odd about that. My big complaint about the um, the device is initially right out of the box is access to dongles. Um, you know, if if we had listened to Greg, we would have ordered all those dongles. You know, when when they got announced, because now it's still seven weeks out to get a an Ethernet adapter. And as I said before, it's kind of critical for my office. Mm. Um, what, what I did today, though, was I proxied. I have my other Mac, and I and I because of using things like Charles and stuff like that, I have a proxy server set up on my Mac. So I basically proxied through my wired Mac to be able to access the repo and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, um, but yeah, not having. And today I went to you know yesterday I built an image that I could image onto these machines, and I've got in my hand I've got a USB. Um, thumb drive and i'm like well, where do i put this and so fortunately i bought the vga dongle which has a usb port on it but i need to be able to boot from one mac and then and put this the new mac in target mode in order to clone over to it right and how do you do that without a usb to thunderbolt adapter right so it's like it's going to be adapter but it's the, the bag bag full of dongles is what i've been saying before yeah mm-hmm. that's going to be the challenge going forward right and it's kind of you scratch your head and you I I know Apple's trying to like they're they're way ahead of us in terms of their thinking, at least that seems to be the way they, they did that before with the the lack of optical drives or the lack of floppy drives back in the day. There's some reason why we should be moving this way. Everything's gonna be in the cloud or something, but um it's it's awfully frustrating not being able to access, you know, all the ports, as it were, right? So Yeah, it seems like they should have made sure that the the dongles were plentiful and cheap on day one yeah, because you're yeah. pretty much stuck not being able to do work i mean at least with you know with a with a the lack of a an optical drive you kind of knew that before you bought the computer so you could just buy a, an external super drive or something like that and you wouldn't be completely down but with this i mean you're you're stuck right yeah, I mean, um, I I had to go and find out where I can. I mean, the Eaton stores, uh, Eaton's uh, Apple store is just up the street from me. I can just like a five minute walk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't have any stock, and the only yeah. other stock I could find are two stores in Mississauga. And you know, unless my wife is driving up to Mississauga for the day, she could pick me up one. But you know, mm. it's kind of 
and and if I go to order them through our regular suppliers, well, there's you know there's seven weeks out, like I said wow. before, right? So for for many of these things, right? The other surprising thing, which I, which nobody's really sort of talked about, and and uh, that has to do with the power brick, right? The you know the the brick that goes on the wall. That's a USB port on that. It doesn't have, and it doesn't have the little wings for wrapping the cable around, like uh, you know you have those little pop. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrap the, Oh, it doesn't have that. But it's just a, it's it's just like a it's like a brick with you know it's got, it looks like like a, a larger uh, if you can imagine you know the the iPad power supply that comes with it's kind of like the little square thing mm-hmm. much bigger mm-hmm. only port on it is a USB it comes because the the Mac comes with all it comes with is the brick itself and a, a I guess a six foot USB C charging cable no extend no six foot extension you know to plug in the wall that kind of stuff right hmm. so you know the the brick that plugs right into the socket right on the wall so that's that was a bit of a surprise i i had seen a tweet about that but i it didn't i didn't put two and two together you know so until you actually get it in your hands you're like whoa what's this for right yeah those what's this about <laughs> the uh the supplies with the with the you know the the what do you call them the little hooks that come the, wing, the, the wings yeah the wings yeah, yeah those yeah. have been around forever i'm really surprised they changed yeah. that Wow. Yeah, it's kind of like back to the day when we had those round puck uh, shaped ones, right? <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah. So, hmm. mind you, I guess you can use a USB uh, charging cable to con- you know can you can network between two. Like that would solve my target mode issue if I if you know if I went from one one of these new MacBooks to uh, a new, another new MacBook, I could use that to put it in target mode. Right? Oh, you can daisy chain them. Right. Yeah, yeah, for target yeah. loading and and for mm-hmm. local networking. You know how you you do the self assigned address thing. You can actually do a quick you know network for transfer. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I mean, you can. Uh, did I hear you right that you can since it's USB, you can daisy chain the power connections. So in other words, uh, you have one computer plugged into the wall, and then another computer just connected to that computer with through a different USB port. No, that's no, not what no. I, no, that's not, no, that's not what I'm saying, but that, okay. that's an interesting hypothesis, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because, I mean, if you can charge a phone from it, right, why right, couldn't you right. charge another Mac? That might be an interesting thing. The only thing is, I think having two, having the device connected by two USBs might confuse confuse it. Like I said, because before, if you use a Thunderbolt cable between two computers, it, it kind of makes like a network connection, right? Yeah, that might work, actually. Who knows? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it would probably be slow to charge, but... In a pinch, it might work. Yeah, I wonder if it if it would work or not. I've, uh, I remember what was it the was it the iPad three that was the first one that like could not charge from my laptop. And granted, it was an older laptop at the time. Mm-hmm. That it really wow. That it, well, because it used so much power relative to what was trickling in that you it was a net zero change, or probably slightly slightly negative. I think. So I kind of wonder, uh, like, hypothetically, this could work. Um, if it does, I wonder if it uh, if it's just really slow or if it uses so much power that it wouldn't, um, you know, while it's running. I imagine if it's off, it'll probably do just fine. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing to try. I mean, in the older machines, when you had a dedicated power slot and uh, USB as separate slots uh, or connectors... Uh, then they could always limit the amount of current sourcing or sync or or syncing through the USB because they didn't have to power through that, right? They didn't have to power the whole computer through that because they had the the dedicated power connection. But now they don't have that. Any of those USB ports can plug into the wall now, right? In theory, right? 
Uh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And so every one of those ports has to be able to sync a larger amount of current in order to charge up the device. So if it can sync that much current, it maybe it can source that much current too. I mean, they might have limited for output. I don't know, but but uh, if it can source that that much, then there's sort of no fundamental reason why it couldn't charge up another computer. I don't know. It'd be really interesting to see. And it's true because, like you know, it's sort of uh, when we we're in the Azores, I was lamenting the fact that I forgot to bring one of the, my one of those backup batteries for doing the extra. You know, when you're out for, for the day and you and you your phone starts to run down, but sometimes mm-hmm. if I have a computer with me, I can use the computer to charge a right, device, right? right? Yep. Um, yep. And yeah, it's a, well, you know what? I have six of them at the office, so I I, I could technically try this this yeah. uh, scenario out, which that most be people a, don't have the access. It would be a pretty interesting blog post actually if you did that. How many how many can you daisy chain? <laughs> and still get charged. Can you can you hook up all six and have the last one get charged? And how long yeah, would it exactly. take? <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. All right, we'll be we'll be waiting for that report next week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, live stream it and then I'll have to look up like what's what's Canadian nine one one? Is it like one one nine or something? <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Well, it's interesting post I found on Forbes about the cost of replacing an uh, AirPods. Um, If total cost of replacement parts, if you lose uh, a single air, uh, air, what are they called? Airbuds? AirPod. What are they called? AirPod. Well, the cost to replace um, the uh, AirBuds, right? How much are they altogether? Two ninety nine or something? That's no, probably, that's probably Canadian. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The US, US. It's 159 US, and this article is saying uh, 69 to replace it, to replace one. A single a single one, right? Yep. How does that compare yeah. to the numbers in Canada? Oh, well, I mean, they would obviously be marked up from there, right? So, but I think... Um, yeah, no, he was saying in the article, yeah, so if you if you add up all the, all the costs to replace all this stuff, if you lost your charger and uh, had to replace all the three elements together, because there's two two AirBuds and then a, or a pod, sorry, two AirPods, pods, and the charger itself, um, all in, it's $207 as opposed to 159 right? Yes, that's what it says here, too. Yeah, interesting that if you lose them, people have, I saw pictures of people losing one or two of them, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You only really need one, right? And each one is a separate Wi-Fi device, right? Somehow synced. Yeah, I mean, they're they're both apparently receiving audio at the same time. It's not like one is routing to the other, uh, is my understanding. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I'm somewhat confused. Like, I can kind of see people's concerns about, like, losing them. Um, although from everything I've heard, it's actually somewhat uncommon for that to, to happen right they they don't fall out like the way it would it would seem um yeah yeah and the price to replace one of the buds doesn't seem too bad i mean that's less than half the price of the total package assuming you know the charger is, is free in this circumstance because sure. i imagine the charger is kind of difficult to lose in and of itself i don't know that there really isn't like a really good comparison that i can think of like People have brought up, like, you know, well, if you, if you lost a pair of earrings, you can't go back to the store and be like, hey, bro, I want to have another earring for less than half the price of it. <laughs> oh, no, I guess you can buy this other set, right? So the yeah. fact that there isn't, even is an option seems like it's, it's actually kind of positive. I think folks kind of looked at it as negative, like, oh, my gosh, like, these things are just falling out of my ears left and right. And like, well, if, if it does, then you probably shouldn't have them. You should probably return them, right? Because this is not fitting in your ear properly. 
Um, like I have some sure. concerns about them fitting into into my ears. Properly. Yeah, um, I I can't even use normal uh, earbud headphones. They don't, they just don't fit in my ears no matter what. So so I will never buy any of these. <laughs> Uh, mm. They, I would, they just wouldn't work for me. I, I just know it already, so I won't even bother. Uh, the the ones that come with the, um, you know, inside the box for your iPhone, they sort of fatigue my ears after a while, and mm. I've not actually, you know, gone to somebody who knows how to do the fitting. I assume that's because my ear canals are probably like a little too small, so it's probably cramping around it, mm-hmm. which is why I am highly skeptical about me ever owning a pair of these, but. Yep. For yep. folks who, who they do fit in properly, um, I don't think it's going to be a big issue for, for people to lose them, right? Like, uh, sure, if you're getting smacked to the head all the time, like on the subway or something, I could see where that, that might happen. Uh, or, heaven forbid, into the snow while you're walking your dog or something. But I don't know. I, I feel like it wouldn't <laughs> be that big of a deal. And yeah, it, maybe it I'm going to have to like... find some old ones and chop off the the wire and the walk wires, around with them yeah. for like a, a couple of days and see like if it would come off or not. Yeah. It does seem like you'd notice right away if one fell out. So the chances of you finding it, unless it's some, you know, strange circumstance, like you're, like you were just talking about, you you know, you fall off a bridge into some water or something like that, you know, which they're going to fall out anyway. So unless it's something like that, it seems like you, you ought to be able to just grab it and reach down and pick it up, you know, most of the time. They seem to be bigger than the um, the wired versions, and obviously they have to have some mass because of the battery in them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they probably they probably just through physics stay in your ears better from the point of view of they're hooking over your ear, notwithstanding the shape of your ear canal, maybe maybe the issue. But I mean, like suppose somebody runs by and grabs them, which brings up another issue, which oh, that's a, a different point. About. Yeah, yeah. But Jaime's got a post here about like uh, people making them look like minty fresh by putting. Uh, Labels on them, yeah. So this this boxes. isn't for the the AirPods themselves, um, and I, I don't know. I, I guess that could happen because way back in the day when when the iPod was a huge thing, wearing the white yeah. earbuds was like a good way to get yourself robbed uh, at, at some point. Um, I don't know how much that's true now, but that that does remain a, a possibility. Uh, this article that we have is from Mashable, and it's about people who are trying to protect the charger, the little charging case. It comes with that. Apparently, if you put the um, the stickers that would normally come with your uh, dental floss, it looks pretty convincing. I mean, it's not going to you know hold up if you take it to Target or Walmart or something and put it right there next to the the other boxes on the shelves. But <laughs> if you're a little concerned about your um, I don't know coworkers probably, um, or while you're at the um, like coffee shop or something, uh, this might be for you. But, I don't see why not. It seems seems kind of cute. I I think if I did own a pair of these, I probably would just keep the charger in my pocket or in my bag or something. But sure, why not? It doesn't hurt. This could be an interesting business opportunity, making a little sleeve that the case slides into that just has some kind of decoration on the outside that looks like this. Yeah, yeah. Or even, like, personalizing these things in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of that um, dental floss style that the the logos all sort of look the same, but you could personalize it a little bit, make it your own. Mm-hmm. Okay, so according to the article, people are selling stickers on uh, Etsy. That's kind of the idea that I was thinking. And rather, so most people are making them themselves. It looks like, but uh, you know, it seems like a good business opportunity for someone to make them and sell them. 
Anyway. But is it an issue? Are people actually stealing these things? Who knows? I mean, maybe. I mean, you, you said there's some amount to, to replace it, right? So I could see how somebody who was interested in, in, in scamming that sort of thing is, you know, steal it at the coffee shop and then go sell it on some, like, local classifieds or something. Go on Craigslist and, and sell it, especially during the holidays and people are you know, looking for this sort of stuff. Yeah. So here's a dumb question. Do these only work on with iPhone 7? I don't believe that's the case. Um, they may or may not work better um, based on, you know, having uh, newer um, Bluetooth chips that, that ultimately do um, everything, right? Um, but I wouldn't see why something as old as, uh, let's see, what the iPhone 4S, I think, that had the Bluetooth, the Bluetooth capability. I don't see why it wouldn't work with those. Not, not to say that it would pair quite as quickly, just based on the, the difference on the, the Bluetooth chip. But I don't think there's any special magic in the 7 and the 7 Plus that uh, it would require, um, you know, require you to have one of those in order to use this. So have you seen these things in the wild anywhere? Have you seen people wearing them? Not in my own personal life, like physically seeing somebody, but I have a couple of coworkers remotely who, who have them, and they, they seem to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. They yeah, seem to have no me. issues. I haven't seen them yet. But I probably wouldn't notice. I <laughs> tend not to notice those things. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. So, Jaime, why don't you tell us about this core data article you found here? Yeah, this is by uh, Kay Harrison from uh, userloaf.com. And it's a feature that I hadn't really noticed that's new to, to Xcode 8. It's um, It's an update to how the core data code is, is generated, right? So you have your, your model editor that you go in, you say, hey, this is a string, this is a Boolean, this is optional, this is it required, that sort of thing. Um, and I got really used to, okay, well, now I need an actual class. So, you know, actual files. So go to the editor, tell it to, you know, generate an NS managed object subclass um, and go on with things. Uh, apparently now you have an option that you can have it sort of behind the scenes do that stuff for you where it'll generate the um like you know your model name plus core data class and your model name plus core data properties um oh excuse me i have that incorrect you get those two files if you do it manually but if you say oh i don't want to do it manually i want xcode to manage this and you can do it by class definition then it creates a your model name plus core data model file, uh, Swift or Objective-C, depending on what you're, you're dealing with. And it tucks that away as part of the derived data. And that's how it sort of stitches everything together. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And, and so this has some appeal to me as an idea. And I, and I have to admit, I haven't sort of tried it out myself in any sort of reasonably large project where it would make a difference. Um, because I always found that that was kind of kind of undesirable, right? It's like, okay, I've got this thing that it literally only needs to live there just so that, uh, you know, Xcode can do its magic and everything can wire up. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to touch this at all. This is just generated code and everything is added in some sort of like extension, right? Um, like a Swift extension or uh, like a category on the, on the file for, or the class for Objective-C. Right. It's like, okay, like all the real business logic goes here, the marshalling to and from stuff, like just let Xcode deal with that. And I think this is kind of like 
taking that a step forward, right? Like, oh, well, why do you even have to have these sort of cluttering up your um, your project directory to begin with? Which, you know, in in theory, sort of makes sense to me. I'm like, yeah, why why do I need those? Like, I should just do that automatically for you, right? Like, the way that uh, interface builder sort of automatically uh, stitches things together for you uh, with the IB outlets, right? But uh, in this blog post, they sort of bring up the point of like. It is another layer of magic, and apparently it has gone wrong um, for him uh, a couple times. And hmm. thankfully, the fix is just, well, just blow away your derived data and start things again, and everything works, right? Sort of the, the typical, if it's broken Xcode, that's probably going to fix it, sort of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I already don't like doing that as it is and, and wish that the touch bar had a dedicated, you know, clear derived data button right on it because I've been using that all the time. Yeah, um, I wish Xcode hadn't gotten rid of that clear derived data button that they used to have before yeah. iOS 8. Yeah. So right. so this to me th- this actually makes a lot of sense doing this doing it this way. Uh so for anyone who hasn't used core data, what we're talking about is that there's a there's a graphical tool for building your models and then when you want to convert those into subclasses of NS managed object uh, the old way was you would go through a manual step and it would create a bunch of files that really just don't do anything except have a, a, a definition of uh, all the parameters that are that are in that in that subclass uh, but those since they're auto-generated those were subject to be overwritten anytime you change something so you couldn't do anything else in those files so they you, you'd have these files and you couldn't really touch them. You'd have to have a separate, typically a category on that class and a separate file uh, in order to do all your, your logic, all your init methods or, or whatever else you needed to do with those models. So in effect, what you'd have is two files for every for every subclass where you really only needed one because one of them is just just a plain old just definition of parameters and you, and you never really use it. Uh, so things would get really cluttered if you have a lot of models. I've had some projects where there's, you know, there's ten or fifteen um, subclasses of, of managed object, NS managed object. So it, so it gets it gets really cluttered really fast uh, with a bunch of files that you don't actually use. And in Objective C, it's even worse because this is a .h and a .m, so it's really four files for every subclass. So so by by moving out half of those. And in Swift, well, three quarters of those, I guess, uh, it really cleans things up quite a bit. Uh, the downside for me is that that's a good reference to know how things are defined. Uh, for a lot of times, it's easier if you just want to know whether something is a you know defined as a NS string or or an NS number. Let's say uh, it's real easy to just just check the .h file for that class. As opposed to opening up the manage object model file and or, or the or the GUI and, and checking there, I mean you can do it either way. But but uh, there is something nice about having the the you know the, the file there that you can just look at and see exactly what's going on. And without it there, it is kind of magical. It's like you suddenly have these uh, these classes that these subclasses that have been defined, but you never see the code where it's defined, and that's a little bit weird. But like I said, it is kind of like interface builderish, you know, where where all the stuff just kind of happens under the hood. So, uh, I say it does seem odd to me that that there isn't a way to reference what's in, what's been defined, you know, through some sort of query of of um, what's going on, you know, in the drive data. Like, 
it, you know, I think this is one of the things we covered in the what's new in core data back in the WWDC talk, but, uh, um, the fact that it's, it does a lot of like, did away with a lot of the sort of um, overhead that we had to have in our app for, stack, for instance, right. yeah, 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 yeah. That's much nicer than it was. That's really, really nice now. Yeah, I can see how this sort of thing is. Uh, in, in addition to the other things that, that we mentioned there about the reduction in, in overhead, they seem like there are a lot of answers towards um, the competitive things that are out there. Right, like Realm is definitely top of mind for a competitor it's, it's it's very different you, your, your classes define what the model is not um a separate model editor and then these other generated files and then so on and so forth right like this sort of cuts out part of that by mm-hmm. not having to generate the files you know or at least not have you see the generated files to begin mm-hmm. with so that that kind of makes sense to me but it, i wonder to address uh, mark's point there about like you know getting an easy view of like well what is this thing I wonder if it would be nice to have, you know, upgrades to the assistant editor so that you could see the information you wanted to see that you were basically getting out of seeing the physical .h and .m files to begin with. Sort of like the generated header that you get uh, if you're using, um, uh, excuse me, uh, if you're using Objective-C and you're using some sort of Swift implementation, you get the generated um, Objective-C header that you can look at. Mm. Well, you can can still... Uh, option click or command click on the name of the class and it will find the class definition file even if it's in the drive data file uh, folder so you still can click through oh, and you okay. can see and you can see it yeah but but it's you're right it would be kind of good to have it in the assistant editor as you're saying uh, just sort of automatically and I don't think it does that now that would be a cool feature yeah yeah one other thing about this that's that's kind of interesting. It's actually kind of flexible because uh, one thing that in the old way, when you did it manually, the, the really old way, uh, it would generate the actual model file. So so it would be you know object.h and object.m. And if you wanted to add methods to that, you'd have to make a category. So object plus methods.h, object plus methods.m. Uh, but... A little while ago, I'm not sure exactly when that was. It might have been Xcode seven. They actually swapped that. So, so the the uh, they started putting the the class definitions into a category or an extension. Uh, I think it was a class extension where they did it. Uh, so, so you could just build your classes using the object dot h object dot m. Uh, put all your methods and things like that, and the rest of the the actual object definition was moved into the into the extension looking file uh and that's and and so with this new approach, you have the option of doing it either way so whatever your workflow is you can you can make it match the one reason that might be helpful is if you have a lot of old if you're using an old project where where it was defined the the really old way if they swapped all the Auto generation now it would it would basically make everything break so so at least they give you the option to go back and do it the old way if you want to. Yeah, it would be nice mm. to have a migrator because I've I've run into that issue where um, you have several sort of different styles coding styles really mm-hmm. when you look at the the generated stuff um, and even just the the names of the files that get output based on oh you know three years ago somebody did this in that version of Xcode. And then the right. year after, somebody did another one, and then and so on and so forth. Just, I find it very difficult to deal with. So if they they had a nice little migrator, said, "Look, just just migrate all my stuff," because it obviously mm-hmm. works, right? Like those old crusty old three year old uh, 
you know, at dynamic files, they seem like they still work. So yeah, the yeah, logic's yeah. there. It would be nice to, to make it visually consistent so it would be easier to, to reference what's going on. Yeah, as an aside today, um, I was sort of poking around with some of this. I don't know what version of Xcode did this. I assume since I just created um, 8.2 that allows you to do this. But you can, um, if you're in Objective-C and you're wanting to see the Swift implementation of something that you're using, before it used to be kind of a hassle because I would, uh, what is it, command click to try to go to it. And it would just show me the generated header which isn't mm-hmm. necessarily what I wanted. Now, when I command click, it will give me the option of like, do you want to see the generated header or do you want to go see the Swift implementation? Which saves me mm-hmm. a lot of time because I don't have to like, you know, um, what is it, command shift O to the quick open. Like, okay, now let me go to that and then go to the jump bar to find the actual method that I want. Mm. That's under command shift, command click now? Yeah, command click. Oh, okay, yeah. So I typically use option click because that gives you the option of going to either the, the header file or the documentation for the thing you can choose in between. Mm-hmm. Which I, I kind of like, but uh, yeah, well, it's good that there's lots of different ways to do things. Yeah, I use a combination of those two, depending on where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big fan. I don't use the, the quick open that much, but yeah, the command click or the option click, depending on if I want to see the definition and that kind of stuff. Option click is awfully handy when you're in Swift and you want to see what... Uh, what a, a variable type or let type or let type is, you know, constant type. Super fast to do that. If you're not sure why why something's not going the way you want. <laughs> so another post I put up here was um, related to something we talked about in the past, and that's um, iPhones and getting in, getting iPhones into different markets. And uh, it looks like India is putting some pressure under Apple to uh, have the uh, iPhones move the manufacturing of iPhones into uh, India itself. Um, and this article talks about, um, a couple of things. One was how, that's how Apple got around, uh, having, um, iPhones built in Brazil, uh, or at least assembled in Brazil. They kind of put them together as far as, far as they can and then ship them to Brazil, um, as sort of pieces that they can then assemble and then say they're assembled in, in Brazil. Um, so it's interesting to see these different, uh, places where phones are actually assembled. Yeah, this company, Wistron, may be the one that will win the day in India, for instance, right? As opposed to Foxconn. Yeah. It, like, I can see from India's perspective, this makes a lot of sense because they want to build up their infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. And and since they're such a big, um, luc- lucrative market, they've got a lot of leverage in, in this situation, right? If you're, you know, a, a tiny little island um, off the coast, you know, in the Bahamas or something, like, you're, there's no chance that Apple's going to even consider taking this request review, right? Um, but when you're a big dog like like India, it makes sense. And uh, I could sort of see why they would want to do this. And I could see Apple's sort of trepidation at doing it because India just quite frankly doesn't have good infrastructure, right? Like that's one of the huge differences between them and China. China is decades ahead of the game um, where they went through all of this pain and effort to, to do that, right? That's why stuff like uh, Foxconn is where it is. So I don't know. Uh, First, first baby steps there. Um, yeah, and actually, uh, along the same lines, that it, be, because India is further behind, it may actually be cheaper for Apple to build stuff there. So they may actually, even even they, though they may have a a lower yield, you know, product yield uh, by some percentage uh, because of the infrastructure, 
the overall cost might be lower so that they come out ahead or 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 are competitive to what they get from China. Uh, and it's always good to have a second source, right? If there's, you know, say there's a, you know, some natural disaster or something in in a big Foxconn plant in China, then they can shift the production over to India and 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 not be completely down. So it's good to have different uh, different plants. I think the other reason why they did the solution in Brazil was because of Brazil's high import tariffs, right, on shipping stuff, assembled product into into Brazil. Um, I guess it was a way of getting around their tax infrastructure mm. mm-hmm. um, by having it assembled there. And, and you know, it's it's not uncommon. We've seen that in the past where, uh, well, we talk about the car industry, for instance, where, um, you know, portions of cars are built in, some of them are built in Canada, a lot of them are built in Mexico, and then uh, parts can be shipped into um, either assembled completely or partially assembled and then, you know, sent over to somewhere in the States and, and uh, finished off, right? And then, uh, quote, unquote, they're manufactured in uh, one country or another. I'm trying to think of another. There's another market I'm trying to draw a blank on where that kind of thing happened. I think I used to work in a business. When I worked in the flag business, we used to do that um, where we would uh, – you know, construct a flag to a certain point, and then it would it, we wouldn't sew it, for instance, and we'd send it over to uh, somebody else who needed to have it say that they assembled it themselves, and mm. they would do the fi- the finish on the flag or whatever, and it was a way of a way around getting the even though it was manufactured here in Canada, it was actually um, or you know constructed, if you will. <laughs> Um, I think they used to do that with uh, Japanese cars at one point too. Right? They they actually right. still do that with, with Japanese cars. Uh, right. They they're assembled in the U.S., but all the parts are made elsewhere. So they right, still get they right. still get credit for being made in the USA, even though they're just assembled in the USA. Yeah, yeah. That may be the that may be what I'm thinking of because we have a, yeah. like we have a Honda plant here north of Toronto, and as well sim- similar thing. I think the final assembly is done here, and it, I think that reduces the cost of importing and that kind of stuff, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a couple of big um, Honda and Toyota plants somewhere in like Alabama or something in the United States that, that do that very thing. And yep. I haven't looked into my car's history, but I find it incredibly unlikely that my Honda Civic was um, assembled in Japan. I'm pretty sure it was assembled somewhere in the south part of the right. U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that was the example I was thinking of the uh, assembly of cars per se. So, well, who knows? Yeah, and remember an episode, maybe a couple episodes ago, we mentioned um, the acronym BRIC, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. So these are the the bigger players going forward for, like, huge growth opportunities, and and that's why people are are interested in investing in them. Mm -hmm. So I I think Mm -hmm. this this makes a lot of sense to me. And and for me, I'm like, man, that's Apple's problem, right? If India wants uh, wants them to build iPhones in India to allow them to sell in the Indian market, um, sure. Yeah. As far as I know, it doesn't cost me anymore. So, you know, hooray for for India. There, you you get some you know some jobs over there that uh, you wouldn't normally have, and it, I think it could be pretty important. I think to have that sort of thing set up, sort of like points of pride, right? Like, if nothing else, looking at it for you know, for Apple strategy you wouldn't want there to be a sort of backlash at what's clearly a, a foreign product, right? It's designed by Apple in California right. and assembled by Foxconn in uh, China. So getting yeah. at least part of that conversation of saying, that, well, no, this is also an Indian product and this is part of you know this partnership we have, I think will be really positive for, for Apple. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also comes down to I think I think importing is is a huge issue. As you know, I've mentioned this before that just about anything that comes into Canada, we pay a little extra on top on top of the exchange rate, right? We pay you know fifty to one hundred dollars depending on what product it is um, for anything that comes up here. And when I was in the Azores, I happened to across a, a local store. I called it the Best Buy in my Instagram post, but it was just a store that sold Macs, right? Um, and it was interesting to see that the prices in euros for various devices was was much higher than I would have expected. You know, beyond just the exchange rate between Canadian dollar and um, or even U.S. dollar and uh, and euros, um, there was there was clearly some extra padding that was in there, and that was probably had to do with importing, right? And I know that I think that some of our I've heard some t- a talk of uh, people in Australia have to pay a lot for Apple product and. Um, as well in in uh, Europe, you know, in Britain and uh, the mainland as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's another way of getting the cost of uh, the goods into people's hands. I know that um, some people have told me, some of my colleagues at work have told me that, you know, to buy an iPhone in India is prohibitively expensive, you know. Right. It's, I'm probably going to mess this up. It's at least several months salary, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if not an entire year. So it, it's... It's not the sort of thing you would do sort of haphazardly. And oh, and actually, now that I think about it, um, India disallowed Apple from having that reseller program where they would get refurbished devices, presumably from like oh, really? the right. Americas and whatnot, and resell them in India. And India said, no, 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 we don't, we don't want to want any of that, right? Like, we don't, we don't want you to yeah, because it's basically yeah. like an e waste dumping ground, right? You're, yeah. you're going to build stuff here. And I think this is part of that conversation. Yeah, I bet you, you know, given the timing, since these deals don't happen overnight, uh, it's, it's pretty likely that that was at least partly a negotiation tactic when they did that a few months ago to get this, to get this thing off the ground. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Keep an eye out for that, right? We've talked about, you know, China uh, as an app store developer being a, a potential lucrative market if you can build something there. Um, to everyone's benefit, if you're listening to this podcast, which is in English, um, people in India speak English. So, um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like, not saying you won't have to, to translate some stuff into uh, Hindi at the very least. Um, you're halfway there. <laughs> Yeah, we just we just add use right? to our localization file when we put it in the Canadian markets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there actually is a Canadian localization as well. Surprisingly, we just spell color with a C O L O R because you know we can't fight you guys. All righty, should we jump into some picks? What do you think? Sounds good. All right, um, my first pick is from. Um, a while ago, uh, I found out about this site, and it came up in a conversation on Twitter a couple of weeks, a couple of days ago, I guess. Uh, somebody was complaining about the fact that there was some obscure error that you got from an Apple device, whether it was uh, build in Xcode or or something that happens on OS X. Um, this, or macOS, I should say, uh, they... The site is osstatus.com, and it's a, a basically a database of all kinds of obscure uh, Apple errors. And I forget the actual instance out there, but if you type in, if you find any Apple error that you come across, like, you know, even going back to the stuff back in the classic days, like error number 39, let's try, um, and you hit search on this, it'll actually tell you what those particular errors are, like error, like uh, NSXML parser attribute not started error. 
on uh, many iOS and Mac devices as part of an XML parser. Not that anybody would do that anymore. Uh, or it could be, you know, something to do with kernel. Um, you can do things. What is, what's our favorite ones? Like, um, what, Seg- Segaboard? Is that the one I'm thinking of? On We see a lot on... What's that one I'm thinking of that we get a lot on Mark, uh, Mark on um, iOS? Segaboard, right? Segaboard, yeah. Well, maybe you get that one a lot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've heard of that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, no, like you, you see up. that one. Um, there's also the one... It's not as common as it used to be, but there was the one that was uh, uh, when you had a, a zombie that was mm-hmm. – uh, I can't remember what it was now. Um, anybody remember what that was? There was a – No, I'm racking my brain for these error yeah, codes. Yeah. So I tried from memory re- trying to think about what the error code was for JSON parsing failing, mm-hmm, and I thought it was 3108. But apparently it's not because 3108 is in Carbon Core, and it's – Receiver not found, yes. R E C N O T F N D. Rec not fund. Receiver not found. That's that's just whenever you have a Oh wait a minute, receiver not found. No, I'm thinking of um selector not found. Selector not available. Yeah, this is from Mac hmm. errors dot H carbon core. Hmm. I couldn't remember the JSON parsing error code. Oh. oh, here's a good one that I, I've run into. Um address book. So adding records error, which is 1001. That's a good one that will sort of mysteriously happen. Does it show up? Yeah, I typed in 1001 into the search box for this osstatus.com. And that came up, including several others. Like, probably yeah. have seen this core graphics one, the KCG error illegal argument, which I've probably bungled myself into. That's nice to, to have a little quick, easy way to look these up, because otherwise you're hoping that it's a reasonably unique number that you can find on Stack Overflow. Yeah, and I think I have to thank a fan of the show, Jesse Catterwall, for pointing me to this uh, this pick, hmm. pick of the week. Yeah, so. yeah. this will come in handy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm bookmarking this one. <laughs> My second pick is... Uh, uh, a book by Erica Sadoon. It's just coming out. It's in beta right now, and it's on Pragmatic Programmer um, called uh, Swift Style. It's an opinionated guide to an opinionated language. <laughs> and uh, I picked it up last week. We were trying, talking about it on our uh, chat and, and Swift channel. And it ta- she starts to cover off different things about, like, why. She even goes into the tab versus spaces a little bit. Um and uh, arguments that you might have on how to handle different kind of style, stylistic things within Swift. Um, and she gives sort of her opinions of how they're, they're uh, one way or another, which way you would go with uh, with certain things. Um, interesting book, so I, I'm going to follow along with it and um, pick up some uh, tidbits. I really enjoy her writing. I've met her back in 2011, I think, um, at a, at she was a keynote speaker at one of our conferences in Seattle, I think. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, this is uh, a book I recommend to people if you're interested in what's going on with Swift and how things are transitioning and kind of sort of why things are the way they are, you know. Uh, she even talks about the argument about, in the first chapter I'm just talking, she talks about, you know, whether the brace should be on the... Uh, following the the declaration or on the next line below and why people prefer one style over another. And uh, her recommendation, actually, if you read the chapter, is to use a sort of hybrid approach for both, you know, if you to use the one style of um, 
with the with the brace on the following the declaration. But sometimes you might want to just for for legibility break it out um, to a separate line. Yeah, it looks like this covers a lot of um, a lot of style things. I see a few things that are a little bit more than just um, you know how you lay things out. And I think this gets to that need we talked about way back in the day for the idiomatic Swift, right? Right. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, well, there we go. We could be we could have been charging somebody nineteen dollars and ninety five cents yeah. <laughs> for our beta ebook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Tim already had like this wonderful cover already created for it too. Oh, well, we still got to do that one. I'm so so sure we're going to do that. That little ABC book. Mm-hmm. Are we? <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, so it's currently in the second beta style here. So let's see some of the highlights she talks about. Yeah, she, I mean, the first chapter is on readability. Is that the sample chapter that's there? Or? No, it's uh, it's improving closure hygiene. Yeah, I could see this being pretty helpful because I've, I've seen people get a little too cute with closures. And as a newbie to Swift, it definitely makes it harder for me to understand what's going on. Yeah, so it's fun, fun stuff. Uh, something if you're interested in... How you should be doing stuff, which is a big argument with people, right? Yeah, kudos to the illustrator. I like the, the little turtle that is <laughs> uh, looks very hoity-toity with his uh, top hat and his very smug look on his face. Very pleasant looking. Well, this is a chapter I enjoyed where she talked about uh, semicolons, yeah. when to use them and when not to use them, and you know, because everybody sort of just abandoned them altogether, but. Sometimes she talks about, you know, where you want to have, uh, you need to, like, do a defer statement rather than just having it on a separate line. You just put it all in one line and for, for brevity and for clarity. Yeah, for short closures, things like that. Sometimes you do that. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, uh, this one, the rule of Joshua about spaces around bra- uh, braces, but not around parentheses. Yeah. Got to give her a lot of credit for writing this thing. I mean, I, I would write two pages and then go crazy and get bored. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting stuff, but writing it all out would would just drive me nuts. Yeah. Well, she said she started it out as a as a sort of a series of blog posts, and decided that you know, maybe she she'd been following Swift since the, since day one. You know, she's mm. sort of the. Uh, I think you both you and I both uh, um, read her uh, auto layout book when auto layout right. first started coming out. Yeah. Right. 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 Yep. So, yeah. Another great book if you're interested in auto layout and the history of. Yeah, it's more historical now because. This that book came up before they made all the the big improvements in was it iOS seven I think it was iOS seven when they when they actually okay, made so auto layout yeah. usable yeah so that's my picks you have a pick there Jaime I do speaking of closures yeah and and speaking of Swift um, this is a blog post by Marcus Smith who works for Stable Kernel a consulting company and he's got a topic on um, preventing memory leaks in Swift closures which um, I found pretty interesting, again, because I'm coming at this from being relatively new to, to Swift. Um, and he talks about sort of the differences between using unowned versus weak, right? So I, I got very, very used to, oh, weak, yeah, I just use it like the way I do in Objective-C, just move on with my life. But apparently not. There's a couple different ways of, of handling this, and apparently uh, he's come across many folks who just use um, unowned because it's, it's a little bit more convenient. You don't have to deal with the fact that weak is optional, right? Um, and, and unwrapping your optionals can be kind of bothersome, depending on, on how you've set things up. Uh, from his sort of recommendation here, he's like, well, 
you know, unowned is, is fine in a way, right? That it, you don't have to deal with the optionality, but by golly, you need to make sure that thing is in memory. Otherwise, yeah, dangerous. You, yep. you, you crash, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so what he's, he seems to be recommending, from what I, I've seen here, that um, it's okay to use weak, and you can just get the strong reference to things using a, an if let or a guard let, and that sort of makes it a little bit nicer to, to deal with. I thought that was kind of a, an interesting thing to read about because I've, you know, I've had to deal with retain cycles before. Heaven knows I've I've been responsible for them, but in Objective C they stick out to me immediately. And uh, in Swift, I think the intention is that they they sort of would stick out immediately to you because you are required to use self, unlike Objective C where you can kind of cheat and get access to, let's say like the IVAR if you wanted to, uh, within a closure. And and I thought it was a uh, Pretty nicely laid out here on, on the differences of how this works, um, as well as the cases where you would you would not have to worry, right? Like um, in dispatch queues or, or UI views animate blocks, where um, you know these class methods are they're not retaining you know, a reference to to what's calling. So you know, do self not do something in a dispatch queue? Um, go have at it. You don't have to do a little dance in there. I thought that was good, so you don't see it as like. Just blind prescriptive, like oh yeah, everywhere I see this, I'm going to do the weak and then do the strong self dance, which will just clutter up your code if it's not necessary. Cool, yeah, this looks good. I'll have to give this a read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your guys' experience, do you use unowned that often? I was trying to think of cases where, um, where I would find that desirable because it, I worry a lot about having stuff go out of memory. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, unless it's like a singleton or something that's, that's known to always be around. I found that concept a little weird. Yeah. I, I can't say that I've used unowned all that often, but you know, I haven't done a huge amount of switch of Swift either though. So yeah, the, the Apple documentation on that is actually pretty good. Uh, so you remember the, the Swift book that everyone read when it, when Swift first came out and probably never looked at again, but believe it or not, Apple's actually always updating that and improving that. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. so I checked it out a couple of months ago, uh, actually reread the whole thing when Swift three came out actually is, is when it was. And, uh, I thought that the, the coverage of this stuff was, was actually pretty good. So it might be worth going back to that and reading it again. We need someone to diff it for us. Right. For the, T for the TLDR, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just read it. It won't take that long. <laughs> like the example that gives here um, of an HTML element class that has like, you know, two different properties that end up being used in um, the evaluation of generating something as HTML string. Like that kind of makes sense to me that unowned would work because by golly, what, <laughs> what would happen if those two those two um, things went away. Uh, like, it just wouldn't make sense. Like, referring to within yourself in this very um, sort of simplistic way makes sense. Uh, I was thinking about these closures where you have um, some sort of asynchronous callback, right, that you're you're dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, dealing with any of the, like the permissions stuff, right? Like, I haven't looked to see... You know, what that looks like if you wanted to get, uh, I don't know, like yeah, location okay. permissions in Swift and how that's actually, um, what do you call it, uh, defined. Just mm -hmm. sort of poke at that. But I can kind of get how this, this would work for 
like you you know by by golly that it's not going away because it is the thing itself and not some sort of um like composed class where there's other things that may or may not go away in the case of the asynchronous callback though you i think you do have to worry about about it going away so you wouldn't want to use unknown there right yeah which because, is where I, where I thought that yeah. unknown was kind of a weird thing yeah never, in that case yeah yeah Alrighty, so Mark, yeah, uh, what do you got there for us? So my pick is uh, uh, yet another uh, machine learning course, uh, and I brought this one up because it's it's really kind of a contrast to the to the last one I talked about. The last one, uh, which was by uh, a professor at Caltech, uh, was very broad and covered covered a pretty wide range of topics in machine learning, starting from the very beginning and some of the real basic theory about how you could learn and what does it mean to, for a computer to learn. Uh, so, so I found that, that stuff really interesting. This one, on the other hand, it takes a very different approach. It's by a guy named Jeffrey Hinton, who is a professor at University of Toronto, uh, and also he works at Google, uh, doing machine learning there. And it's called uh, neural networks for machine learning it's on Coursera and it's it's very it's a very different style course it's it's only about neural networks so it's not going to cover a whole lot about you know linear regression in fact not at all nothing about support vector machines none of those other types of of machine learning that the other course talks about it's all about neural networks but it goes much much more deeply into a lot of details of neural networks uh now I've I've only gotten about a third through this one so far, so I so I can't really comment on the whole thing. Uh, I will say that it's very detailed; it covers a lot of stuff, but it doesn't go all that deeply in, into any one particular topic. So it's sort of, in some sense it's more of a survey of of a, a very wide range of topics all related to neural networks. So if that's something you're interested in, definitely definitely check it out. It's uh, it's free on Coursera. It's you know like everything else with Coursera you can you can pay to get a certificate when you're done, uh, or you could just do the the course for free. Um, but uh, yeah, if this is an interest of yours, definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Now one of the one of the tools that it uses at, for the homeworks and all that is a language called or a package called Octave, which is essentially a free open source version of MATLAB. And I'd used it in the past, and it was it was mostly uh, command line, and, and it was it was good. But uh, you know, I was writing a lot of scripts in command line. Now they've got a kind of a nice GUI, uh, and, and I and I actually think this has existed for a while, but it's only now becoming available and easy, simple to install package for Mac OS. So you can now just you know with with one click on a link, you can install this thing. And have a, a, a nice GUI-based IDE for doing octave coding. So, if you have any need to do matrix manipulation uh, or any of the stuff that you'd usually use MATLAB for, uh, but you don't want to spend the you know pretty large amount of money that MATLAB costs, uh, this is a pretty good option. Octave GUI for macOS. So, I've got a link in the show notes about where you can get that. You know, I'm glad you you said the fact that it was like MATLAB because I remember seeing. I can't even remember who it was. It was like must have been a, a former coworker who showed me some of the uh, octave stuff that they were doing for a machine learning class. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, this looks a heck of a lot like MATLAB, where you yeah you put in you know relatively little code and it spits out things like Newton's method and other things." So right, right, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool for you know like 
uh, I was thinking it from numerical analysis standpoint because I hadn't done any um, machine learning stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. It's, you know, you, you do some of the stuff, the matrix stuff, if you take a math course, and, you know, you remember it being pretty tedious to, to do all these long matrix multiplications. So it's something that, that is an obvious thing to do to automate, to, to computerize. Uh, and there are things like, like MATLAB or Octave, or in Python there's a library called NumPy that does a lot of that same stuff. But there really isn't anything for Objective-C or Swift. And when you start trying to write by hand uh, all of those matrix manipulation things, uh, even though you, you can use the Accelerate framework, it has a lot of that stuff built in, it's still kind of a pain to actually write all, all that stuff out because you get to keep track of what all the dimensions of all the all the matrices are and 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 uh and and loop through things to 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 you know to do your dot products or whatnot uh but with something like this it's it's real simple you just do you know you just have one matrix and times another matrix and done you know it's real simple so it's kind of a nice tool and free and open source That's and, and free and free yep yeah free i remember matlab being uh, pretty pricey matlab is pretty expensive yeah yeah, yeah. Mathematica is another one that's kind of like that too. Also very expensive. Yep. You know, I think this sort of topic, uh, we certainly we've mentioned it in other episodes, but it sort of comes to the forefront um, as we're recording this. This is the week of uh, CES uh, going on and seeing mm-hmm. all these different oh, announcements right, yeah. of, um, you know, we've talked about these different, you know, digital assistants like the Echo and the Google Home. Um, yep. tons of products came out that are um, competitors to those, some that are using the technology like the Alexa service underneath. So this is, I think this will just be bigger and bigger in the future. And Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, for for anyone who's in this field, it's it's definitely worth spending a little time just at least finding out what, what it's all about uh, so you can at least have a conversation about it because it's it's really becoming a big thing. At least here in Silicon Valley, I mean, it's, it is the thing. From what I'm, from what I'm told, if you walk into a VC, a venture capitalist, with a with a pitch for a company, uh, if you don't mention how, how you're going to use machine learning in in your in your product, then they don't even want to talk to you. That's an exaggeration, but but it's but it's kind of get to be like that. Yeah, this might be the the next big wave. I think of, of yep. things. Um, yep. Yep. Certainly feels like that, and I. I feel more strongly about it than I do a couple of other things just because there's tons of data out there. Um, right, right. In some cases, maybe more than there should be, but it's, it's just yeah. kind of a fact of life that we're generating so much. So techniques to make something interesting out of that data that's there yeah, will yeah. become only more important in the future, I think. And, and a lot of this stuff has been around for years. The, the techniques have been around for years. People have known how to do this stuff. But... As you said, the the data wasn't there for one thing, and the other thing is the the computing power wasn't there enough. Well, there, it wasn't it, the computers weren't strong enough until maybe about ten years ago or so. Or so the 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 computer power started getting there, and now with with the internet, just the amount of data being generated is just enormous. It's, things are huge, so so it's really a, a confluence of of of. Uh, things have things have gotten to a point where there's where there's so much data, and we have the computing power to handle that data, and just the the applications are endless. So I agree. This this could be the next big thing. Maybe already is. 
and we just uh, aren't aren't far enough into it yet to to see it everywhere. Although mm. it is everywhere around us, you know, you wouldn't have Siri without machine learning. You wouldn't have um, uh, photos, you know, finding faces without machine learning. All the stuff is it's all it's all machine learning under the under the hood. So definitely worth checking out. Cool. Don't be scared by the math. It's not that bad. <laughs> all right, that's all I got. All righty. Shout out to Jeffrey Fulton, who just uh, sponsored us on Patreon.com. Welcome to the, uh, the group, and we really appreciate your support. Uh, we also have Neil Van Fleet. That seems to be a new person as of November, I guess. We have Jeff M. Uh, we have the Catterwalls. Alicia Ramirez at Winnipeg. Uh, Tammy sponsoring us. And Felix and Ryan Rapp. Those are our sponsors. Well, that's it for another week. So, Jaime, if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, where would they find you? I am usually on Twitter, and I am always at Dev of the Hair. There you go. And Mark, if people want to get a hold of you, I am rarely on Twitter. So go to markrsmapsoft.com. <laughs> Although right. at Smapsoft does exist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I said before, I'm Timitra, and I'm T I M M I T R A. Twitter is the best place to get a hold of me as well. And I guess that's it. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 The music. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes for each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. from University of Toronto. Yeah, that was part of the we reason say, why I put it up there. We say U of T, by the way. U of T? U of T, yeah. It's not U of T or U of No? Sorry. <laughs> it's about, about U of T, About About U of T. No, just U of T. Surprises in short to UT. We say instead of... So the University of Washington here, uh, everybody yeah. else calls it Washington because that kind of makes sense. That would yeah. be too common here. So we just say UW or UW, depending. Oh, UW, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She is Calgary. Texas. University of Texas, right? Oh, oh, very, oh, very, very complicated. The rest of the country yeah. calls it Texas. Um, I'm from UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso. So we call them UT Austin since they're a part of our system. Right, 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 right. And to me, UT is uh, Utah, right? Isn't Utah UT? I could see that. State of, state of Utah? That's a state, but not the university. Well, come on. I mean, um, still. <laughs> no, no, I'm trying to think what they call the university. Let's, let me think. Uh, well, see, Waterloo, we call Waterloo, Waterloo. We call York, York. We have the UBC for University of British Columbia. Yeah. Calgary, what do you say, U Calgary? Calgary, I don't know. In California, we got all these 
tons of UCs or University of California uh, campuses. So the the main one, the original one, is Berkeley. So that one's just Cal or yeah. or Berkeley. People say Berkeley or Cal, either one. Yeah. Uh, but, all, yeah. but all the other ones go like UCLA or UCSB or UCSD. Yeah. So it's the initials of the city after after UC. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. It it, it was. The day after uh, Carrie Fisher died, that uh, I went to go see Rogue One with my family. It's kind of the day oh, no. it out for us. Hey. So wow. it was. Uh, you guys have seen the the movie, right? No, I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers. I've seen okay, it twice. Okay. We, won't, we won't go into it. Yeah, I ended up seeing it twice too. So it just kind of felt like, oh man, like this whole Star Wars thing was like kind of ill timed for me, given the you know her passing away. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you heard that. Apparently, Disney might get like um, fifty million in insurance for her death. Oh really? Hear that? Oh yeah. Oh, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. There's a so apparently there's a policy with Lloyd's of London that uh, they have on I guess all all the properties, right? All the all the likenesses and stuff, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I guess it makes sense because like that'll help pay off the reckless endangerment fee or bill or or um, penalty that they paid because of what happened to Harrison Ford for the Force Awakens. Oh, with the the door falling on him or something? Yeah, yeah well, like it broke his leg. Right, right. It's probably like yeah. a workman's compensation <laughs> claim there. Mm-hmm. But it's also yes, covering yes. themselves, right? Because they spent they spent like two hundred million bucks on that movie, and if you know if 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 she had died before the movie was done or whatever, and not well, not Rogue One, the one before, right? Uh, if she had died before the movie was done, and and then the movie sucked, and nobody went and saw it because of that. Then they're out that couple hundred million bucks, so they're kind of trying to cover themselves for that. So she's filmed all of her pieces for um, Star Wars Eight, mm-hmm. and apparently, whether or not she was going to be in Star Wars Nine, apparently there has to be some rewriting done now as well. So, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. it's a big deal, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, it's funny that even her mother, Debbie Reynolds, who, as we know, passed away the next day, she was also 19 when she was in the, the her big movie, which was uh, Singing in the Rain. Mm. So, weird stuff. There's some funny clips, though. You know, Carrie Fisher's a big, I mean, one of my favorite expressions by her, and I've been, it's actually on my Facebook page, is in, uh, instant gratification isn't fast enough. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, so, sort of a hero. Oh, well. So this episode yeah. goes out in memory of Carrie Fisher, I guess, right? Yeah, why not? Are you going to give us a an update on the uh, best places to eat in, in the Azores? <laughs> I could if you want. <laughs> best malasadas in the Azores? Yeah, it's funny. I've I've had those before. Those what do you how do you call them again? Malasadas. malasadas? Well, I mean, the, the trip to the Azores was fascinating. I mean, Carol's really into volcanoes, and it's all I can do to keep her from wading into the lava, right? Um, but and the whole island is is made up of lava. Like, uh, in fact. So much so that the sidewalks are made of, if you, if you look at my Instagram posts, most, a lot of the shots are the walls that run along the roads are all um, made of the lava brick, and the sidewalks are all made out of it. Houses are totally made out of it. It caused havoc with uh, with our Wi-Fi connections in the, in the villa that we're staying in. And it's funny, the roads are all really narrow, like they're barely one car width wide. And, you know, you're whipping along at 30 kilometers an hour, or 30 miles an hour, no, kilometers an hour, I guess. Yeah, because there's only one country I can think of that isn't in the metric system so far. But um, she'll remain nameless. Maybe Trump will fix that. But um, 
the as you're driving along, and it's like it's totally a driver's country because there. I don't think there's an uh, an automatic car on the on the on the island. Everything is like windy roads and up and down hills, and you know. So if you're into driving in a standard car and and, and uh, across the country, you know, everywhere we went was by car, um, and it was it was interesting driving. If you're into Gran Turismo and those kind of simulators, this is like a real chance to do that kind of stuff, right? But, you know, as far as the food goes, I mean, we went to a couple of places where um, it was amazing um, platters these guys put on of, of uh, seafood, of, like swordfish and, and tuna, um, all kinds of stuff, with all kinds of, like, you know, veg- fruits on the side, like pineapple, fresh pineapple and, and oranges. And, you know, the stuff grows on trees there, literally, right? And, you know, the bill would come at the end of the day, and it'd be like 40 euros for, like, six or eight people to eat, plus drinks, right? So it was like super, super inexpensive from that perspective, right? And we did take advantage. There's also they have the hot springs where you can go, like there's water heated, super heated by the volcanoes, and you can go like have baths in them. It smells, you know, it's got sulfur and iron in it. Very destroys your bathing suit, but it's like really nice to sit in in these things like 39 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that equates to in Fahrenheit, but it was warm. (laughs) Fun time had by all, you know. Oh, I I should say though that. we have this plan, and maybe you guys have something similar. Um, we have this share plan now with our with our. I'm talking about cell phones now, right? Or um, Rogers plan has this this thing they call Roam Like Home, and they're like, oh yeah, it's it's super simple. It's ten dollars a day, but it's ten dollars a day for my iPad, my iPhone, and Carol's iPhone, right? And then your data you use is part of your data plan. You don't get any extra data with that. So if you go over, like I currently have only four gigabytes of data between the three devices. And I was already over, right, for the month, right? So every, um, I think, two gigabytes of, of download is, is another $20. So I think by the time, by like the third or fourth day in, I had already spent like over $100 in, in just in, in access to the to the cellular network, right, for data roaming. My iPad obviously is unlocked, right? So I went and got a, a card from Mio for... I think it was 20 euros for 15 gigabytes of data, and I use that for the rest of the week because, you know, I don't know. I don't know what your – what do your providers do for when you go to Europe or Canada or, you know? That's a good question. I have AT&T, which has – I think I have a Canada plan, but uh, I would have to get a special plan to go to Europe, I think. I'd have to double-check. I haven't taken this phone to Europe. What about you, Jaime? You, I know you came to um, NS North once, at least, right? Yeah, but I didn't end up using my, my data because we were out in the middle of nowhere. So it was pretty much Wi-Fi um, all the time uh, in the lodge. Uh, Verizon, yeah, I don't really know what it would be like to Europe. I think you can turn on a Canadian plan that's, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm sure, it's probably something like 10 to $15 for a few gigs of data, something like that. Yeah, I forget well, what it was, yeah. Yeah, when I, I mean, I haven't got my bill yet, but I was doing the math. I know when I went to Tennessee, you know, I, I did the same thing. I used the Roam like home there. Um, and I'd forgotten that I'd left my, my iPhone and my uh, iPad on. I had had data, data roaming left. I left it on. So as soon as I landed the plane in um, in Portugal, like, I immediately started, you know, the meter started running, right? So, yeah, so it's kind of a kind of a burn. But I'll find it when I, I find it when I, when I get my next bill. Basically, I have unlocked devices, I guess. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.